Hi, and welcome back to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Castles. And today I have with me a mom of one, Veronica. She is a former client of mine who wrote in recently with a really interesting question. And when I saw it, I thought that this was one we had to have on uh, to really talk about because I know she's not the only one facing these questions. So welcome, Veronica. Thank you for being with us. Hello. And... Well, I'm very pleased to speak to you again. Um, so why don't you, I'm going to let you pray, uh, repeat your question, I guess, read it, whatever you want, um, just so that people get a sense of what's going on here. And um, I'll let you go to it here. Okay, so I'm just going to read from my email. So bear with me, it's a little bit long, but there's quite a few questions in there. Um Okay, so my son is almost 11 months. I've always responded to his cries and met his needs immediately or as soon as possible to avoid the cries in the first place. He's now growing up into a toddler well past the fourth trimester, yet I'm in the same mindset of there being no difference between wants and needs. I feel like I'm hell-bent on avoiding cries at all costs, and I wonder if this is a developmentally inappropriate approach going forward into toddlerhood. Um, so at what age do wants stop becoming needs? Is he ready to learn some patience or how to handle minor disappointments? I noticed the other day that after a few moments of voicing his discontent, not crying, um, but just complaining, when placed in the playpen while I used the restroom, he gave up rather quick and began playing with toys. And this was new since normally I wouldn't have put him in there unhappy, but I had no choice at that point. Um, so I thought, I wondered if I'd been not giving him enough space or time to work on his age-appropriate independence. Um, I'm often told that I run to him too fast when he complains or cries, and usually I ignore this type of thing, but now that he's older, I'm starting to wonder. Um, and I also heard someone mention the term supportive crying. So I'm wondering, is there an age when crying is not as detrimental to them as with all the damages that for example, CIO could cause, um, cried out. Um, and then lastly, when are they capable of benefiting from gentle discipline and guidance? Like when are they old enough to understand and actually learn from that? Or when is it time to start implementing those ideas? That's it. Okay. That's it. <laughs> a lot there. But mm -hmm. I think a lot we can talk about here. <laughs> it's okay. These questions all tend to be multifaceted. That's the thing is with parenting, you never get one really clear cut question um, because it often just branches into so many different areas of our parenting. So for me, what I saw when I, I got this question from you is really three distinct areas that still overlap. So the first was really this discussion about wants versus needs. When does this shift? Um, how does it happen? What can we do? How do we as parents differentiate our responses to wants versus needs? The second is the idea of the crying and responsiveness, both uh, the question about the detrimental element of crying, like crying it out, uh, the notion of supported crying, but also being responsive to their distress. And then the last one is kind of this gentle discipline, or as I put it, kind of the starting of boundaries. Um, it, would you say okay. that that's probably the three main areas that you would take from that too? Yes. Okay. So let's start with the wants versus needs. So I know probably you've heard and we've talked that for babies, really all they have are needs. There aren't really wants at the beginning. They need you. And when they cry, they're really telling you that they are in need of something. Um, but this does change. And over time, they do develop wants. They, 
you know, learn that they want a specific toy, they want a specific thing to eat. Uh, and, and these are things that we know if we don't give it to them, they're not going to die. It's not going to be the end of the earth. They're not going to be traumatized forever if they don't have that My Little Pony versus another. Uh, but mm. deciding when this happens and how it happens is a really difficult transition, especially when our kids are at that toddler age because they often don't have the language needed to really help us discern what's going on. They're responding the same way. They're crying. They're upset as they did when they had needs. Um, but sometimes these are still not needs. So how are we, the parents, supposed to tell the difference? Um, I want to use here a couple examples to kind of highlight this. And I'm going to use my own son, uh, Theo, who is 13, well, actually now 14 months the other day. But um, so he's 14 months. So we're also in the same similar transition period of of wants and needs and how we respond to them. And it doesn't help, I want to add here, that society often has some really weird ideas about uh, what constitutes a need versus a want. And they treat a lot of needs as wants. So we're told to dismiss our children at times when I would say I think it's actually inappropriate. Uh, so these are always kind of things we have to have going in the back of our mind. So the first thing is my son loves chocolate chips. He is a massive fan of eating chocolate chips. Clearly, he does not need to eat chocolate chips. Given the opportunity, he would probably eat them breakfast, lunch, and dinner, um, and then for snacks in between, if given the opportunity. But at no point, it, it's a very clear want. So does he get upset when we stop with the chocolate chips? Absolutely. Sometimes. Um, sometimes he's had enough and he'll quite calmly move on to something else. But sometimes he really wants the chocolate chips and he gets angry if he doesn't have them. But at this point, because it's so clear, I can say, all right, I know this is a want. So it's very easy to say no. Comfort him because he is upset by it and rightfully so, um, because we all get upset when we lose things that we want. But um, I know that's that's clearly in the want category. But we also faced the other day this issue where I try and get my work done in the mornings. It works best for me. It's easier. He's predominantly cheery. But he wakes up later than a lot of babies. And we were finding that when he woke up and I wasn't there, he was getting really upset. And this is a case, I think, where a lot of people would say you're facing, he just wants you there in the morning. My husband was there with him, waking up with him. It's not a problem. Um, I knew he was cuddled. He was loved. He was everything. But he was truly upset in those mornings when I'd already be downstairs working. And if he came down and saw me, it would still take a good 20, 30 minutes to get him to his usual chipper demeanor for the day. And so I saw this as, on the one hand, I had this idea of what we hear of society is, no, 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 he's got all these needs met. He's got someone who loves him, who's holding him. He's got comfort. Um, and you need to get your work done. But on the other hand, I saw this boy who was really different than what I know him to be because I wasn't there. He was really acting different. He was, up, he was legitimately upset by the fact that he was not waking up to me there with him right away. Um, so mm -hmm. this was where I had to say, that's a case where, although I think a lot of people would have jumped in and said, that's just a want, I viewed that as a need. He needs me there with him in the morning. Um, is it a need as strong as he needs to eat to live? Absolutely not. But really what is? But emotionally, 
psychologically, he has that strong need. And the way I view the differentiation is there's two ways. One is, I think, his response. I see him behaving differently. And you know what I mean? When you see when your kid just, they're, they're a level of upset that you know is not, it might seem either out of proportion of what's going on um, or surprising. Does that make sense? Yes. I feel like I can tell the difference. Yeah. So you you know, you can kind of see that difference. He's truly just beyond upset in a way that it wasn't just a, oh, this sucks and I want something else. It's I am really deeply at my core bothered by this. Mm-hmm. And secondly, yeah. he's not asking for something um, unreasonable. He's not asking for something, not even unreasonable might not be the right word, but he's not asking for something that like chocolate chips is clearly just a frivolous want. Wanting that comfort and that contact to someone who you're, you know, is kind of your rock. My husband, he's securely attached to. Absolutely. They spend a ton of time together. But, you know, I'm breast sleeping with him all night. You know, this is what he's used to throughout the night. So wanting me to be there first thing in the morning seems very reasonable to me. It seems like there is an emotional connection there that he's lacking in the morning when I'm not there. So that's where I start to make my differentiation between these wants and these needs. So it's not about uh, the actual behavior per se, but about his response to it. So in the case you gave about going to the bathroom, for example, he's upset about you going to the bathroom. And I think we all, you know, as you and I were talking about briefly right before we started recording, there's a reason there's jokes about peeing in peace, Um, that it is something we all experience. Our kids, they don't want to leave us a moment to go to the bathroom. And in some ways, there's a real reasonableness to that for at certain ages, they don't have object permanence. They're not entirely sure we're coming back. Where did we go to? Um, But there is just that want to be with you. So, but as you saw in your experience of giving him the moment, he got over it pretty quickly, right? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of one of the tests that we use. It's not bad to try new things with our kids and say, how do they do? Um, Especially when it's something like, I need to go pee. You know, you have to go to the bathroom. That is not something you can just put off indefinitely. We may get really good at it at times as you sit under a sleeping baby and knowing you're not going to move them. But by and large, you have things that have to get done. And if especially, you know, it's just a small period of time, testing him out to see how he does is actually a really good way to start to see how how much of this is he really wants to be with you versus he really needs to be with you. So in your case, you had him playing by the end. You came out and he was presumably quite fine from that moment on, right? Right, yeah. And it was just new. I just had never tried it before because I didn't have to. I always had my husband at home. Um, So this was new. But yeah, it looked like he was handling it well. And I've done it, obviously, now that I'm my husband's back at work I've had to do it several times already and he doesn't always respond that well but generally he he does seem to get over it rather quickly so he's getting used to it exactly and so this is the real key about the wants versus needs um, and also starts to touch on this independence you were worried about the development of independence is it's trial and error he's not going to magically there is no magic age 
at which suddenly he just has wants, needs. He's going to handle all his wants appropriately, and he's going to be very clear about his needs. It just unfortunately is not that simplistic. I wish it were because I think it would make all of our lives a lot easier. But really what you're getting is, okay, what can we try? What can we see him do? So you haven't been inhibiting him by having dad there. That's great. He had someone else to go to and they got time. That's wonderful. Um, So you shouldn't be looking at it as you having not provided him with something. It's more now's the time to say, okay, we're going to start seeing how he does. And what you're seeing is he's getting more and more used to it. He's learning that you are actually still coming back. You're there and it's such a short time. It's not... Um, you're not, you don't have to fear being in the area of something like crying it out where you're leaving him for prolonged periods. Um, you're also, it's mm-hmm. a one shot. You're going to the bathroom and then coming back and then he knows you're there. So he gets to build up this association of safety with what you're doing. Now it would be different if you had come back from the bathroom and he was inconsolable for 15 minutes afterwards, then you'd have to start saying, okay, this clearly is a need for him. Something else is going on that is saying he is not ready for this. And at that point, it may be, you know, like many parents, you go, all right, you're coming into the bathroom with me. (laughs) And you're sitting down and please don't unravel the entire roll of toilet paper. Um, But if you do, (laughs) oh, well, like we'll work on this. And maybe you'll slowly, you know, move him out, start in the bathroom, then sit outside the bathroom with the door open, uh, whatever that is. but you would slowly have to build it up that way to work towards the independence. So that is kind of how I see it. So you, you really are judging based on his responsiveness and his, or his response, pardon me. And because he's good, you're now building this one up. But as you come to the next thing, can you think of something else where you'd want to start building up some independence for him? Um, Well, lately he's been having trouble going into his high chair. Like he just wants to be held while he eats. And I don't know if that's just something to do with solids or what, but he's been complaining about just being put into his high chair um, lately. Okay. And then also diaper changes are a problem. And these aren't, it's not the same type of situation. I haven't really had to leave him alone except for very, very short periods, like to go to the bathroom or to let the dogs out, but it's never more than like, five minutes, I always come back and he's not inconsolable or anything. So I don't really have any other examples as far as having to leave him alone or play independently. But what you've just explained is actually a great one about the high chair and the diaper changes, because these are things, again, that we tend to see, are they just protesting, get used to the high chair? Now, I can think of Mm -hmm. a lot of different things in the high chair that could be, you know, real needs. Is he afraid of the heights of being up there without being held? Is it the feeling of being strapped in that isn't comfortable? Or is it just, you know what, I think it's way more fun to eat with mom. Um, Are solids new and therefore a little scary still and he still wants the comfort? And this is why it gets so hard. Again, like I was saying earlier, it's just so hard to really disentangle wants versus needs because he can't tell you exactly why he's having the struggle he is. Um, But building up for it, Like with everything, when I talk about sleep with families, when I talk about tantrums, whatever it is that people come into, one of my big guiding principles is when you're making change, you make it small and you make it consistent. 
Um, so in this case, when you're trying to build up this independence of sitting in the high chair, I think it's very reasonable to always start by trying to put him in and seeing how long he lasts. But when he's upset about it, then it's time to take him out. It's We run into more problems when we try and force independence on our children than when we allow it to happen and allow him to start making his own associations and build up his own sense of comfort in that new environment. So it may not be life or death. We don't know exactly what it is that's going on with the problem with the high chair. Um, but it certainly is an area where you can put him in for the beginning each and every time, unless if he's really protesting, even going in, then don't try and force it. Be like, okay, today is not a high chair day. Um, it doesn't mean he sits in your lap to eat. You allow yourself some time to eat and maybe put him down to play for a bit so that you can enjoy your own meal without having him grab at your food or your plate or your fork or your, whatever it is. Um, and saving yourself the cleanup after, but giving him that consistent time to go in and try it. Also giving him the chance to communicate that he's done with it is important for him to feel safe with it, right? If it becomes a source of contention where he's in it all the time and he hates it and you're leaving him in, it just reinforces that it's a negative place. If he's in and he says, I want out. And when he says he wants out, you're able to take him out then he's given the opportunity to say, oh, this isn't so bad, right? If you were, okay, yeah. think about it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And that's kind of what I've been doing. I don't force him. If he's like really upset and, and screaming, doesn't want to go in, I will try again later. Um, yeah. So that's okay then. I didn't know if, if that might be causing more issues if I constantly take him out as soon as he cries or not but I definitely don't leave him in if he's really upset and I always take him out if he's you know happily eating and once he starts fussing to get out I take him out immediately because I do want him to enjoy his time in there and to eat exactly you want think we're on the right track yeah you want these positive associations especially around something like food where we have a culture that's notorious for really negative associations one of the things i can recommend there too is um trying to teach him the sign for all done um the hand turning if you can look it up the baby sign for all done it gives him a chance another way to try and communicate that he's done and wants out without having to get upset by it Mm -hmm. okay and it, it just it gives him more control over it it makes it a bit more pleasant um and if he starts doing that it also means you might get that extra moment you don't feel the pressure to immediately he's upset i must get him out if he starts signing i'm upset you can be like oh okay you're done and you want out just a minute and do that you can even start saying that to him when he starts crying as i see that you want out i understand i'm coming to get you just hold on a moment and get him out because they understand far more than they're able to communicate so he will start to pick up on what you're saying and start to be realize okay i've been heard you're coming to get me and know that it's okay and possibly start to calm down a bit more before instead of ramping up with crying, he can start to calm down. Mm-hmm. So that by the time he gets out, he's okay. perfectly happy and content. So this kind of segues nicely into this idea of crying and responsiveness. Um, because of the link here to like that you brought up the concern about something like crying it out and also the idea of supported crying. Um, I want to make very clear here. There's one thing that has to be said for everyone. Responsiveness is not judged by whether or not you're successful in getting your baby to stop crying. 
So even when we look at the research, some of that, the most famous research, Mary Ainsworth work, looking at responsiveness and later crying, has always found that babies who are responded to by their parents, regardless of how successful a parent was in that moment, actually cry less and have the better outcomes long term. So responsiveness is not necessarily how quickly you get your baby to stop crying. Because we can get our kids to stop crying in ways that aren't actually helpful. So for example, if, you know, your boy was upset in the high chair, and instead of, you know, just taking him out, and, you know, taking that moment to slowly get him out, you tried to distract him to keep him in, and you got him to stop crying, the distraction doesn't serve as any means forward for any emotional development or emotion regulation. Um, And in fact, there is research that seems to suggest it doesn't even help calm the negative emotions, that once that distraction is gone, those negative states return again. So there's a lot of different ways. So we don't want to think about this idea of I have to stop the crying at all costs. That puts a lot of pressure on you. And I, I don't think it's appropriate pressure. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. So what we want to talk about with responsiveness is that you're doing your best to provide for him what he needs in that moment. And sometimes he will be upset and he will continue to cry, especially now that you're you're leaning towards wants um, of something he wants but can't have. And you're going to just be there to support him. And this is where supported crying comes in. And it is, it's a great tool to have because when you're dealing with wants being able to hold your child and support them while they cry allowing them the chance to kind of um express that negative emotion in a safe place not feel like they have to hold it in not feel like um, it's somehow a bad thing to feel upset about something you're giving them that opportunity in a safe space and that's what the supported crying is great for um, so again, if we went back to, uh, the bathroom example, oh, the bathroom's hard because you still got to pee, but, um, so you're not probably going to be yeah. holding him crying while you pee, but afterwards, no. right? Yeah, it would make it yeah. a lot. I mean, okay, if you manage so- to make that work, good for you. <laughs> uh, but if you had, for example, he was really upset again afterwards, um, you still have to pee. And you'd still work on different ways to try and sort it out. But that would be the time when you would want to hold him afterwards, let him cry in your arms, being comforted, and letting him know that it's okay to have those feelings, right? When we work too hard to stop the crying, we can inadvertently let them know that these feelings are somehow bad. And that's not the lesson we want to show our kids, right? It is okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. So if you find that you're getting into this distraction just to stop the crying, that's when it's veering off course. You never need to distract. Yeah. So there's a difference. There's being responsive and doing what you know you can do to alleviate the distress. So for example, um, a child that hurts themselves, if nursing is going to help take away some of the pain, withholding nursing doesn't make sense right? You, your kid bonks the head, you offer the breast, they're happy. That actually offers a type of pain relief. You're actually helping them. Um, but sometimes you can't do that. So sometimes you have to just accept that, you know, they're just upset. You can't do anything except be there for them at that time. 
Okay. Um, I did come across something, I don't remember where, but um, I read somewhere that it wasn't the best idea to offer the breast every time, like if they have a fall, like you should not restrict it. If they ask for it, give it to them, but it's not ideal to offer it every time. It is. Well, there's a lot of people that think that way. I tend to take um, a different view, but it's obviously age dependent and, and what families are comfortable with dependent. Nursing is one where, you know, if a mom is not wanting to offer the breast, then she might wait for the baby to be asking for it. And that's completely fine. I don't think it should be withheld if baby asks. Um, Yeah. The idea is somehow you're to be honest, the idea behind it doesn't make much sense to me. So I, I struggle with it to even understand it. But the idea is somehow you are inhibiting their ability to cope emotionally. Unfortunately, what that ignores is that the very beginnings of emotion regulation are actually co-regulation. And our kids, nursing is more than just offering food. Um, it has a wide range of benefits for our kids from a social emotional perspective, um, not just a nutritional perspective. And so when we offer the breast in times of um, upset discomfort, actually what we're doing is helping develop the emotion regulation system because it's helping their body calm. So one of the ways it does it. Yeah. Is that not then in the same category as a distraction, getting them to stop the crying? Well, it is different. That's what I'm getting to. So the way it works is it's, you're not distracting them. What it does when they, when our kids get upset, they have a physiological reaction, right? So you end up probably their cortisol rises. They kind of go the vagus nerve, which regulates a lot, um, kind of breaks and allows kind of a flight or flight type response to happen. I'm very much simplifying this just for the sake of our discussion here, because it could probably take 20 Mm -hmm. minutes to fully explain what happens. Um, It takes a lot to get ourselves calm and regulated. And if you know, if you were to get really upset by something, um, it can, depending on the degree of your own distress, it can take a lot to get you calm again. um, Or you could very quickly do it because you have the ability to regulate. But in re- as your distress gets larger, even as adults, it gets really hard to rein that back in to get ourselves calm again. Um, and we often need other people's help in those moments. So you think about the biggest tragedies that you've had in your life, and often you probably couldn't calm yourself independently. Um, just to throw it out there to explain to people just a bit more, when my mom died, um, it was very sudden. And when I was told, I was beyond hysterical. And I could not calm myself (laughs) right away. It just was not possible. I needed the assistance of others at that time. And our kids, unfortunately, go from zero to 10 much faster than we do when they get upset, simply because they're not, they don't have the regulation that we have of over most of their physiology. Um, What nursing does is it doesn't just distract them. It's not really even distracting them. It actually works to calm the system. So Stephen Porges has done research that found that nursing specifically pulls the brakes off the vagus nerves and allows it to then re-regulate the system again. So what it's doing is actually at a physiological level, helping baby understand, okay, this is how, this is what calming feels like. 
this is what my emotion regulation is supposed to feel like is I get upset, but then I'm brought back down. And so when we offer that, that's what we're offering them is the means to physiologically bring them back to a level that they're comfortable with. And that's why it's so distinct from just flashing a shiny object, because that may take their mind off it. But physiologically, that hasn't changed, which is often why as soon as that object stops going, they go back to being upset again, because their body hasn't actually responded, hasn't regulated itself. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so at a certain age, you may want to see, again, trial and error. If you don't offer the breast and you just cuddle, does babe calm down pretty quickly? And that's completely acceptable to try that. Um, I don't think it's acceptable to tell parents they shouldn't offer the breast. If they're comfortable offering the breast and they're able to do it right away, they want to, they're they're comfortable doing it, the age of the child, whatever age that is, whether it's a baby or a three-year-old, seems relevant for them to do that, that's totally fine. Um, what you wouldn't want to do is try and force them to nurse, but I've never met a parent that did that. I know people throw that out as some counter. I have, I would love to see what that looked like, um, to try yeah. and get a child to nurse who doesn't want to. I don't know how that would even make sense. Um, so that's where, uh, the nursing comes in play is both a helpful thing, but it is totally okay to say, all right, let's wait and see if the child asks for it. Um, and if you want to wait for that, that's great. Um, or you may just want to ask, do you want to nurse instead of just necessarily taking it out? Because if it's out, they might be like, eh, cool, I'll go for it. Um, whereas the explicit act of asking forces them to kind of make that connection that they can ask for assistance in a given way um, that might help them. So right. that's where I see that the nursing is really good. Um, to help for that. And that's where, again, we get sometimes the people that talk about supported crying end up trying to use it as a replacement for nursing um, or a replacement even for responsiveness. And this is where it gets touchy. If you know your child has a need. Um, so, for example, I'll go back to my son in the morning. He was always upset and in my husband's arms. He was supported. But that was still not helping him. That was not the type of supported crying that he needed because what he really needed was it wasn't about just expressing a negative emotion. It wasn't about letting that out. His need went beyond that. And so supported crying cannot meet that need. If you know that there's a need outside that you can meet, you should be meeting it. Um, you can't always do that, unfortunately. So at times you may discover that there's a need, you know, that you just simply can't provide at that moment. And, you know, I've had moms who had to go into the hospital and were on medication. They couldn't nurse for a period of time and they were normally nursing. Um, they just couldn't. And at that point, again, supported crying is always going to be better um, than the non-supported crying. And in a moment, I'll get to why specifically. But that is, but if there was a need that you can meet, the supported crying doesn't replace responding to that need. Okay. Okay. Um, so now we want to get to the crying it out and the negative effects of crying that you talked about um, and where supported crying comes in. So crying in and of itself is not bad. 
Uh, children crying happens. It happens to all of us. Um, you know, some people talk about how cathartic it is to have a good cry. I've personally never really had that. <laughs> That's when I cry, I feel kind of crappy afterwards. But um, it does happen. It will happen. You cannot stop your son from crying. You will not be able to stop every cry. But where it becomes dangerous is not actually even in the amount of crying. It's the amount of unsupported crying. And that's because when they are supported, um, our babies don't have the same physiological reaction to the crying that we talk about as being potentially negative with a child who is undergoing unsupported crying. So even in the case of my son who's upset with my husband, I was never worried about the effect of his crying in his arms. Because I know that that support that he's getting is actually negating a lot of the negative upset um, or the negative uh, repercussions of the Mm -hmm. extended crying. But when left alone, it would be slightly different because at that point, he doesn't have both the responsiveness from from a caregiver who's helping regulate his body for him. Um, But also for whatever reason, it's this period of hyporesponsivity where being separated from a caregiver is actually one of the few things to really elicit a strong cortisol reaction, a strong stress reaction in our infants. So I know he's not getting that, but it still is a need I can meet. And I still think that when we have those needs that we can meet, these are the things that we want to be able to do for our kids to help them feel safe, secure, um, and really develop that foundation from which they can go and be independent and explore from. So that's where we hit this difference of supported crying being really helpful in many ways, but also not wanting to turn too much to the idea of ignoring when we can help our children with their needs. Uh, Even if we don't necessarily know what the need is, I don't, you know, personally know exactly why my son needs me in the morning, but very clearly that's there. And I should add here that say I had to work outside the home, well, helping him adapt to that need would be perfectly, or pardon me, adapt to the change, the absence of that um, would be really important. And it wouldn't be harmful to him to then have someone else cuddling and comforting and being there for him. Um, But I'd be working really hard on making that transition more gentle for him than just expecting it to be okay because he's being held. Does that make sense, that distinction there for the supported crying? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay. So in this, then the supported crying now leads us to kind of this last gentle discipline and boundaries area. Um, Because supported crying is to me the bedrock of dealing with with boundaries and gentle discipline, because that's when you really need to practice it. Um, That's when our kids get upset about things. And these are wants, these are, or needs that we can't fulfill um, for a variety of reason. And if anyone thinks that at any point in your life, you're never going to face not meeting a child's need, I please ask you to think again, because we will all be faced with a variety of things, whether it's related to going to work and not being home over ending nursing for a variety of reasons over not being able to co-sleep anymore for a variety of reasons, or just simply 
they have a need for something, a, a cuddle, a moment that we can't provide at that moment. There will always be at least one moment in your life that you cannot meet a need. Um, so please know that um, and know that that's why we have these other things in place. Um, but supported crying is the bedrock of gentle guidance. Um, and when you talked about, I kind of chuckled to myself when I read, you know, is there an age at which gentle discipline and guidance is appropriate? Because I'm going to bet you actually already engage in it. Um, so bear with me. But does your son play with the hot stove? No, but he wants to. <laughs> does he take baths by himself? No, he does not. <laughs> so you are already engaging in gentle discipline, especially as you mentioned right there. Yeah. He wants to play with that hot stove. Um, right. Our kids are always doing things and we're always finding the right boundaries. The difference with our society and um, and the notion of gentle discipline and these boundaries is often we feel like we should be imposing boundaries that aren't quite natural. So the stove, no one thinks about that as gentle discipline because, yeah, it's a hot stove. You're keeping them away from mm -hmm. it. Um, so it just seems natural that you're going to do that and enforce that boundary no matter what happens. Um, but then we get into these other weird boundaries, like pe some people will have the very strict one of a child should never be co-sleeping um, or a child should eat everything on their plate or they have to share their toys. And these are things that are not, not biologically, not, you know, cross-culturally normal. Um, and that's where it starts to feel weird because we start to feel, am I doing something wrong? Um, how am I supposed to enforce these boundaries? And then when people try to enforce them, they find it's really hard to be gentle with it because our kids protest a lot about it and it rakes on our nerves for it. Um, so one of the things I talk to people about with this is, first off, when you're setting boundaries, when you look at gentle discipline, your boundary should always be something that you are that you're really firm on, that you feel strongly about. So the hot stove, right? At no point are you ever thinking, well, I can just let them try it. You know, you're not going to deviate from that, right? Right? Right, right. Okay, <laughs> just checking. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to things like co-sleeping, right? That a lot of families first start off with this boundary of, no, I'm not going to do it because I think it it's somehow bad. I've been told I'm going to create a clingy, dependent child. Well, then the tired comes, they're asking to come in, they're crying, and you start to bend. Um, and that's often when I say, okay, you've got the wrong boundary. It's not that you're enforcing it wrong. It's that the boundary itself is wrong. You're enforcing something that is not matching with both your instincts and ideas of parenting and what your child needs. So if the boundary is inappropriate, it's really hard to engage in gentle discipline um, because it feels wrong. But if the boundary is appropriate, it becomes very simple to do because you're just, you have it on your mind. So that's why sharing is really hard to enforce a lot of the times because sharing is not really normal. Um, not to the degree that we expect our kids to do it. So, for example, when we talk about sharing, a lot of families have now rightfully switched over to, okay, my child does not have to share every toy. 
Instead, you go through with the kids, especially when they're old enough, pick your favorites and we'll put them away so that no one uses them when a friend's over. And that way what's out is shareable, but the child's had control over it. Just like we would do with our own personal things. We have people over, we expect them to use our cups, our plates, our cutlery if we have them to dinner. We don't ask them to bring their own. But we also don't expect them to take our cell phone or our laptop and take it home with them. Or even grab our phone in the middle of our house and start using it. And yet that's what we're expecting of kids. So already I'd say you're engaging in gentle discipline. You're guiding your son towards the things that you think are right and wrong. And you'll continue to do that. It will become more pronounced as he gets older and gets into more things. But generally, the boundaries that you have to maintain now are safety ones. There's very little outside safety that is a must boundary. Right. Yeah, everything is safe safety-related that I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah. So do you have an example of where it might be struggling with the gentle discipline and the and the boundaries there? Um, they're biting. And it's, it's mm. not really me. I mean, he does, he has bitten me when he was um, teething, but that's, that's not really an issue. It's more he's biting. Like we have, you know, the foam, the foam, like, sticky thing that you put on sharp corners and edges and things that we have on Yeah. Yeah. The furniture, he likes to bite that. The one piece of furniture that doesn't have it, he wants to bite that. He wants to bite his crib. Um, so stuff like that. And I think it's kind of becoming a game to him because he, he'll go real slowly, open his mouth, and look at me kind of smirking <laughs> like, hmm. And he knows he's not supposed to do it. But So I think I might have turned it into a game. <laughs> Which we do sometimes do. But here's the thing I'm actually going to ask. Um, what, I mean, he's not biting people, right? No, no, he hasn't bitten like another baby or anyone else really. So no. So the boundary here, what's the, what's the fear? What's the main goal of you stopping this behavior? What's your main goal for? I don't want him to ingest any toxic chemicals and he's, he can scrape because he's got a lot of teeth. He's about four on the upper, yeah. so he can scrape off bits of like varnish. Um, he's okay. got some wooden blocks that he scraped off little bits, and I don't want him to get into splinter. I just don't like it. I don't know. It okay. Doesn't seem safe. All right. So, but this is good because now you've identified what's the real issue. So, him biting is not inherently the problem. It's what he can get from it that's no, the problem. What he's... Right. Yeah. And I do try and offer. Um, a teething toy or something appropriate for him to bite instead. It just doesn't work. Like the redirection is not working in this case. He just wants to bite furniture and just random things in the environment around him. (laughs) Well, and I would say, you know, babies explore with their mouths. So there's a lot there. I would say the problem here is the teething toy is not what he wants to bite. Um, And I don't think you have to let him bite everything else. Um, Clearly, you know, there's also the who wants teeth marks on their furniture all the time, too. But it is now... Or the electrical cord. Like, it it, it is not safe. Yes. And those, you know, and those you immediately stop. It has to not be a game. You stop it. It's no. And very firmly, no. Take it away. When you offer other stuff, what I would start recommending is looking for things with different textures um, and harder things that you are comfortable with him biting. 
So if it's all natural wooden blocks, yes, there might be a fear of a small splinter. I'd say that's probably on the lower end of likely. Um, If he's Mm -hmm. really comfortable, if that helps, because also some of this biting is probably both exploring in the mouth and, you know, again, still teething, teeth coming in, right? So there's the joy of just kind of getting hard down on it. And teething toys, I find, I mean, at least for me with my kids, by a certain age, they're like, yeah, this does nothing. This is not, it's soft. It's great for the gum. Not once you already have some teeth in. Um, Right. Yeah. That's where we are right now. Yeah. And so I think basically what you want to do is still be firm, saying no and being firm. And if he gets upset by it, again, we go back to the supported crying. Yeah, I know it sucks. You want to bite your crib, but that's not safe. Or you want to bite the electrical outlet. That's not safe. So, and talk him through it. It's, you know, the more you speak to him about these things, you don't quite know everything that he understands already, but at some point he will understand it all. And so the consistency, the comfort of, uh, you know, I get that you're frustrated and I understand you can offer him, you can bite these things. Um, If he's not happy with that, he may just need some cuddles, you know, to get that upset out. But just reinforce it. That's really, you know, now that you, like, when you know what the boundary is and you really, you know, look at, okay, what is the real issue with it? It makes it easier to come up with the alternatives that you can offer him. So this is what I say about getting away from just the teething toys. He's clearly not liking them. So it's time to start thinking outside of, okay, the biting is something he's really wanting to do. So what can he bite? Can you give him a spoon to bite? Yeah, I just thought Um, of that. A wooden spoon. I'm going to look around for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Those things, you know, but stuff that's made for the kitchen tends to be really good because it's made to go in the mouth um, or -hmm. made to go in our food. So it tends to not have a lot of the the other chemicals and concerns that we would have about things that are made for other areas of the house. Um, So getting him a special little box of, you know, biting toys would be a great little, you know, and then redirect him to that at the time. But if he gets upset, it's okay that he gets upset. You haven't failed. It's not you doing something wrong. At that point, you're actually still doing quite right. Um, You're just allowing him to express that he's upset. You offer the comfort for him and then you move on after. And once he gets it out, he may want to go bite the toys you do offer him, or he may be done with his biting. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You sound a little hesitant. I want to make sure that there aren't any questions or, or concerns with that. No, no. I'm just thinking about it in my head, how it's going to go. I, I kind of think he's going to go right back to biting the same piece of furniture after he's had his <laughs> crying fit. So I'm wondering, do I just repeat keep reinforcing that and, and just yeah. repeat and, and do the supported crying every time? as many times as necessary. Obviously I'd go to another room. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, and maybe start thinking of if there are certain things he really tends to go for, if there are ways to try and block them so that he can't have access, start looking at, we've done the best that we can with, with the room that I'm thinking of, which is the den where he spent a lot of time. It's, it's almost devoid of all furniture. There's not much (laughs) left for him to get into trouble, but He's like, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, but yeah, he's gravitating toward the last piece of furniture that's left and we can't really move, but yeah. Okay. So I'll try the supported crying on that and we'll see. Maybe there'll be some improvement um, 
And it takes time, right? Because in his mm-hmm. mind, he's yeah. really, you know, they're at an age. That's the other thing that I think we often forget is they are, especially early toddler years, they are one track mind. They are focused on one mm-hmm. thing that they want. <laughs> so you take them back off it. They go right back there. So mm-hmm. it's not you. It's not him. It's just the state of how his brain's maturing. You know, he's able to focus okay. on things now, but he's really not able to switch gears very well. And that's that becomes the harder. So I would say, you know, offering the sport of crying, leaving the room is a really good idea because it offers the visual cues to shifting mindset and shifting what he's looking for. Um, but there's a reason kids in general suck at the sh- games that require them, the cognitive flexibility games where they have to shift, it takes them a while. They get stuck on one thing and then want to repeat. It's why they read the same stories 20 times over or want to watch the same episode of something 20 times in a row. Um, it's, It's really good for them too in many ways because they pick up different things each time. But it's really hard for them to kind of switch gears. So if you can offer a visual cue to switch gears... Um, by going out to another room and then maybe offering something else to bite on, that may have a better effect than trying to do it in the same room. Yes, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, I think, I mean, if we look at this here, we can see, like, across all of these things, he's just at an age where, you know, you are going to start seeing all of this kind of dovetail together. There will be more crying um, because he will be getting frustrated by things. He will be experiencing wants that um, he's really going to, he's really going to want them no matter how much you may not want. (laughs) He wants them. And you're going to have to say no. You're going to have to enforce the boundaries when they're appropriate. But always ask yourself, if you find yourself struggling with the boundary um, or you find yourself, you know, constantly having to, you know, um, do the crying in arms, but it just goes right back to the same thing. So the moment you get flustered with that, it's time to look at the boundary itself um, and how you're, what the environment is looking like surrounding that boundary. Right. Okay. And it's, you know, I kind of look at it. If you had the oven example, going back, you know, you could look at it. If you had a kid that you were constantly having to keep away from an oven, but your oven was only a foot tall and you were always cooking that low to the ground. You would say the real mm-hmm. problem here is is the boundary is good. It's just the implementation is you've got to get it up out of reach for him because you can't expect him to take the initiative on not touching something so tempting. And that's right. the same with this one is, you know, if it becomes a problem where it's just so repetitive all the time, it's look around at the environment of what what's going on. And it may not be removing things. It may be adding things to block or introducing enough items in the room that are okay to bite. Okay. Yeah. We might just have to look at like a gate for that section of the room. It's not, it's not out of the question. So yeah. So yeah, something, a gate's a great idea. That's yeah. But something that really allows you not to put the burden of raising your expectations of his behavior. Right. Because being realistic about what he can and can't do in terms of inhibition is really important for us not losing our mind and in turn being able to remain gentle and present for them Mm -hmm. when they need it. Okay. Right. All right. So does that feel like we've addressed your question? 
Yes, absolutely. You've been really helpful. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. I hope it's helped other people that are listening too. So it's actually kind of fun to do the talk this way. I, I was had in my mind all these ideas of what the podcast would look like and it just keeps changing as I do these. It's like, mm-hmm. oh no, this is a better idea. So we'll see. But I have I thank you so much for sending this in because I think it is such an important topic that so many people hit, especially right at around the same age. Um that yours is that kind of transition to toddlerhood comes with so much more to uh to embrace from the baby stage so it's really a great great question for a lot of families that are looking to try and remain gentle but sometimes question what how they can do this um and whether they've been going wrong when they see kind of these repeated behaviors, what am I doing wrong? Why does he keep going back? Um, so this is, this is really great. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for agreeing to be on to do this too. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. It's, it's been really reassuring to that I'm, I'm on the right track, um, but I have a lot more tools, I think now that I can try and use. So thank you. Good. Oh, well, good. And just remember, it's always trial and error. There is, there's no playbook, but you're just going to keep trying and, you know, look at his response and know that you're not going to harm him by trying once to see if he can handle five minutes while you go pee. You know, that is not going Mm -hmm. to be a game changer for him. Um, And as you discovered, you may be pleasantly surprised by what you find. So that is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I'm going to sign off now. So thank you everyone for listening. And we'll be back next time. I don't quite know when and I clearly don't know what it's going to look like given that these keep changing episode to episode. But if you do have a question, please feel free to email me. You can send it to Tracy at evolutionaryparenting.com. I am definitely open to doing another format like this. If you have a question that you'd like to be on to discuss, I'd be happy to do that. You can also check me out online at evolutionaryparenting.com. We have a Facebook page under the same name and a Twitter account. So you can check those out. And I look forward to meeting all of you on the next time. 